every single job, from camp cook to jump master, is a part of the lifeline connecting the agent in the field with his home office. No matter how removed your job may seem, the degree of your conscientiousness in maintaining security can be the difference between success or failure in the field thousands of miles away. Welcome to Covert Contact from Blogs of War, where each week your host, John Little, takes a deep dive into the national security, intelligence, and technology stories that are shaping our world. All right, welcome to Covert Contact, episode 112. I am your host, John Little. It's Thursday evening, so that means it's time to talk to William Tucker about counterintelligence topics. William, welcome back. Well, thanks for having me back. Uh, nice to be here and fulfill my legal obligation. <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna press charges or something if you can't make it. Uh, <laughs> uh, I feel like you're a probation officer. Um, so yeah, we were just talking. The uh, stories just keep, the indictments just keep dropping. You know, week after week, every time we record one of these, you check the news the next day, and it seems like there's a another Chinese or Russian espionage case, uh, an indictment dropping, and this time it is a Chinese uh, Texas A&M University professor who uh, is in court in Houston. Uh, Houston is once again in the news, and uh, you know it's another classic case where there were there were all of these consulting arrangements and trips back and forth to China, and apparently at least allegedly sharing uh, his research work, uh, work that was funded by NASA uh, with his, his uh, benefactors in China. Yeah, I'm almost, uh, I'm almost thinking at this point that uh, the Department of Justice is uh, listening into this podcast and doing this on purpose, but uh, I'm, that may be a little delusional. But <laughs> anyway, this is a, yeah, this is, a, uh, this is a, another good example of uh, industrial and economic espionage in the academic community. Um, so it's, it's a place that you can operate. You can operate sloppily um, for quite a long time before anybody catches on. And by the time that happens, uh, yeah, you may have a uh, individual you can indict, but uh, how, how much have you lost in between time and how many other people are doing this? It's, uh, it's, it's, yeah, it's certainly so prolific. It's uh, a little maddening. And it's it's happening uh, very much out in the open, and and to some extent, um, you look at this case and uh, you see how out in the open it was, how obvious it was, uh, and how sloppy the tradecraft is around the entire event. It's it's really interesting, and you know we've been talking here a long time about the scale of Chinese operations here, and how much of it has been taking place in this sort of gray area around, you know, traditional business consulting and academic partnerships and things like that. But clearly, like, <laughs> I think we have their number now. Uh, it certainly seems to be that way with the, the amount of these cases that are dropping and I'm sure will drop in the future. Do you think the Chinese are going to have to adjust? 
maybe not right away, but I think that'll be be inevitable. Um, because right now, it's again, it comes down to a matter of volume. And this is something I've mentioned before, is that you can't necessarily prosecute everybody, so you have to rely on uh, pretty blatant disruption. And I know the, I know the FBI was uh, very aggressive in that, um, interviewing some of these individuals who constantly went back and forth to China and eventually telling them, uh, don't come back or we'll nail you on visa fraud. Um, because they, they had lied on their application, but again, you can't prosecute everybody. So it's, it's more of a, a, that warning, um, uh, you know, just, uh, to push these guys to the point where, where we can, we can send them away. We can disrupt some operations. Um, because it, again, it just costs too much money. It takes too much effort to prosecute some of these individuals and, with the volume of information going out the door, sometimes your best bet is to simply disrupt it. Um, what I would like to see, and this is something I've been kicking around um, in the kind of in that realm of disruption, is uh, it might be time for some form of amnesty or um, maybe maybe just allow these guys to come in from the cold. Uh, at least those that are working in the academic academic fields, because uh, again, um, just with the resources it takes to prosecute people, that you might be able to say, "Look, we have something on you, but if you help us identify uh, how this particular talents program is working in your uh, in your area or your university, um, maybe we can gr- cut you some leniency." Uh, I think it's really going to come down to that because you can disrupt some of these guys that you know are going, constantly going back and forth to China, but uh, ultimately there's a lot of people that are still working here in the United States and haven't felt the need to make frequent trips like that because they can do it online or right. through old school espionage through the consulates or embassies, you know, good old fashioned drop, uh, drop boxes and things like that. So, I'd, you know, I'd uh, be in favor of that because, you know, I believe a lot of the participants in this uh, may think that they're they're skirting around rules or laws uh, that that are inhibiting their their um, their economic activities, their willingness to to be consultants or the, you know engage in business in China. In their head, it's not necessarily espionage. They didn't set out with a desire to harm the country necessarily. I mean. I think, like you said, there's no way to track every one of these down. Uh, if you could find those folks who maybe got in over their heads a little bit and made some bad decisions um, and realized that they would like to extract themselves from that, then opening the door to them would shut a lot of this down. Yeah, and one of the easiest ways to do that would just be to follow the Department of Defense grants. Um, I know there's a lot of them out there but uh, there's also a lot more people that are exploiting these grants. So uh, following the grants really narrows it down because in in this one, this is kind of an interesting case because we have um, an incident of both economic and industrial espionage, and there is a difference between the two. So economic espionage is something that would be state-sponsored. Industrial um, espionage is like uh, competitor-sponsored. So this individual actually opened up his own business uh, and he's actually not the first guy out of Houston to be indicted for doing this under um, uh, the whole Chinese espionage thing. Yeah. 
But yeah, he started his own business and that would fall into industrial espionage. But we also know it was sent, uh, some of this information it looks like was uh, certainly going back to China. So that would make it economic. Um, and, and I think that's an important distinction to point out because it just shows you that one, um, that these guys are starting to work for themselves, obviously, because there's money to be made there, but they can still hope to help the home country by, uh, by sending some of that back and hoping that their new company that they set up will get contracts or, uh, jobs or, or whatnot to, uh, to really exploit what they've, what they've stolen. But yeah, yeah, I've seen this in, encroach into a lot of areas where uh, you wouldn't think that it would be a problem, and definitely where folks um, aren't, you know, individuals who may be approached with business opportunities or consulting opportunities. Security and national security and espionage is just not something that they have ever thought of. It's not. I mean, I'm talking about doctors and and teachers and all kinds of, of other professions. And all of it is interesting to China. Like they do it on a massive scale with lots of different professions. And you may not think about a physician or some kind of specialist going to China and training folks as an intelligence problem. But in many ways it is, uh, the folks who are paying for this, um, you know, they have a slightly different uh, objective in mind. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, and, you know, with, with China, it's really across the entire spectrum, not just of uh, economic activity, but sometimes just that uh, um, that human knowledge, you know, however you want to apply it. Yeah. Um, there's, there's certainly interest there. So they're looking at a whole society concept, yep. um, not just, hey, we need to catch up, say, in uh, microprocessors. Um, which they do and which they've been targeting quite aggressively. But um, no, this is um, this is really across the board. Uh, so it, uh, unlike Russia, where I've seen a lot of Russian cases, um, you know, we, we spoke about Devin's, uh, that Devin's case last, uh, uh, what was it, last week? I think it was last week. Yeah. <laughs> We've had so many. Um, you know, and that was, that was certainly traditional uh, tradecraft. He was uh, doing any number of things. Uh, that wouldn't necessarily fall into your um, economic or industrial espionage, more certainly in the political realm. But uh, it's a great case because it also shows that uh, Russia is very specific what they target. They don't do the whole blanket and let's go after anything and everything. Right. Um, no, they're they're very targeted. China can be targeted too, of course, but. Um, uh, again, that's that's just one part of of what they're what they're doing right now. I think I think that so, explains the sloppy tradecraft to some extent, and the fact that the folks that they're working with in these cases that, that get caught in these cases have no apparent uh, preparation for what they're doing. And I, you know, I think that's because in many cases uh, they don't look at it in the same context that you and I do. No, and. Um, you know, I doubt any of these individuals have any training because a lot of times they don't need to. They're not trying to obscure their activities because there's nobody to obscure it from, um, or at least that's been the, been the way it has been for the past at least three decades. Um, they, they can come in, they can operate, claim to be above board, and for the most part, they operate above board. They're just sharing everything they do. And, uh, but in know, some cases, time, like, like this case, uh, 
you know, there, there, he had to lie, um, you know, for some of these grants about his, you know, his business dealings and relationships with China. And he was publishing under his name, uh, in his field of research, uh, with the Chinese university. I mean, that's, that's really sloppy. Oh, well, sure. Sure. Um, but like I said, I don't think these guys get any sort of training in that. Um, right. and certainly nobody was there to reprimand them because a good, any, any sort of good case officer would, would say, Hey, you need to, you, know, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you need to tighten up here. Um, you need to not have articles about yourself on the on the Chinese university website. Yeah, yeah, and uh, because because they're accessible and somebody's going to find out, and so it's going to trip them up. Um, and now saying that now that this indictment is dropped, and now we we know our friends there in the MSS who are listening um, are going to start going out and starting to plug some of these gaps in those uh, academic. Uh, uh, websites and those academic publications uh, that are public, and uh, I mean that, that's going to be damaging. Certainly, not just for the Chinese universities, but uh, um, everybody elsewhere that kind of has that relationship with any sort of Chinese university is now going to um, eventually get cut out because China's trying to trying to obscure what they're doing. I mean, yeah, they're they're late to the game in doing that, but the, again, there's never been really any incentive to do it because. You know, the, just the U.S. or the Western world really wasn't targeting um, them as aggressively as you would think. Right. But uh, and and of course, I always joke. Um, you know, uh, Germany's getting pretty serious about Chinese espionage, and you know, you have to really cross uh, cross the line um, to wake the Germans up to do anything. So, um, yeah, it's it's quite significant. Well, China can try to scrub the internet. Uh, good luck with that. Uh... And uh, just the fact that you scrub something can be a signal on its own. Yeah, I mean they're they're going to try, um, but yeah, it's 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 certainly a, uh, a unique situation. They're gonna they're gonna have to go back to sort of like old school tradecraft and true, you know, like classic espionage and and retreat a little bit from this model. I think um, the pressure is, I think, is only going to escalate and. Uh, you know, just as uh, there may be a significant volume, and so you can never you can never chase down all of it. But the other the other thing too is that if there's this much of it, and there is, and and the trade craft around it is so sloppy, uh, then it's going to be easy pickings for dozens and dozens of cases. Yeah, and of course it'll have uh, political repercussions as well. So yeah, I mean China's going to have to adjust. Yeah, I mean that's kind of the nature of the game, but. And, and I use a good example is that um, we we just had some more information kind of come out of the uh, the Chinese consulate closure there in Houston, where um, now we knew once the Chinese were told to close the the consulate, they they obviously alerted certain individuals who they felt may be at risk because of that. Um, at the time, I was under the impression, from what I understood, that there was only 20 individuals that had been warned, and now we know it was almost double that. So that's 40 individuals, um, and that you know that 40 individuals is quite significant. And but that's just really a drop in the bucket. That's just one consulate, probably um, one one case officer there that was running these individuals. Uh, so that's, I mean, yeah, that just shows you how how big this this really is. I know one of the one of the larger um, cases, uh, Chinese 
espionage cases that I'm that I'm uh, familiar with, uh, personally familiar with, I should say, um, had you know it started with one individual, um, but once once they, there was eyes on him, they kind of got the the impression that he had recruited the individuals on his own, um, and the the agencies that were involved in investigating this kind of let it go for a little while because they they were hoping to get um, the the handler that they knew um, was in China for the most part to uh, slip up and um, kind of reveal himself, but unfortunately that didn't happen. Um, so they ended up arresting uh, this one individual and, and pulling in um, basically the people that he recruited himself. Um, and it kind of spiraled from there. It was, it was certainly interesting because I, we, a lot of these guys, they just, they had some access to, but it, again, it was just grab what you can and run for the door um, with some of these guys. And that's, that's all they were doing, but they were certainly involved. They were taking money. They were um, and certainly supporting the state, even though they had absolutely no connection to the state, which was really, really fascinating again. So, but uh, yeah, yeah. So the, this is this is certainly an, an interesting network, and uh, I think we did talk about the uh, the one guy that was uh, um, there as a Singaporean national who mm-hmm. was recruiting via LinkedIn um, again. And I mean, he was using a modern tool, but uh, yeah, he was able to put together some pretty large networks, even though he was kind of lazy and really didn't uh, develop them. Um, but the opportunity was certainly there, and he spoke to that opportunity quite bluntly when he, after his uh, arrest. We're talking about this from a U.S.-centric perspective. Yeah. And yeah. we have, compared to most countries in the world, a significant uh, law enforcement and, and counterintelligence um, you know, machine to deal with these. It's never adequately resourced, but still a much bigger oh, no. a much bigger machine than most countries have. Think about the scale of this when you apply it globally. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and, you know, I already mentioned Germany, but I know uh, the French have had a crackdown, uh, the Australians as well. Uh, Singapore, Singapore has actually grappled with the problem for quite some time. Um, they're actually quite astute in dealing with it where they can. And, and that guy I just mentioned um, that was recruiting via LinkedIn, his, uh, I think it was his PhD advisor, um, was actually quite pleased that he had been arrested. So, <laughs> I, I think that'll give you some insight into their into their attitude towards this whole thing. But um, yeah, yeah, certainly it is it is widespread, and I know uh, across Europe they're they're cracking down where they can, and um, in a lot of cases, some of these European uh, nations they don't necessarily have the mechanism to do to deal with that. Um, some of those things have atrophied, uh, atrophied since the uh, the end of the Cold War, and because they were they were focused on integration, and integration means sharing. And of course, somebody's going to come along and exploit that uh, that relationship. And uh, China is more than happy to fill that gap. And I can't blame them. I mean, it's you see those opportunities in the U.S. and in Europe to, to poach information. Uh, you'd be a fool not to take that opportunity. Yeah. No. I mean, all you know. Like we said, all credit to them. Um, we were willing to give it away for a long time. Uh, yeah. If somebody's willing to do that, you line up to take it. 
I was reading um, just this week that Japan is also um, getting um, very concerned about this problem and has had recent issues with China uh, and, you know, are looking to even stand up uh, new counterintelligence, uh, industrial espionage um, departments, and, you know, even wants greater access to um, Five Eye intelligence to tackle this. Japan has largely handled that kind of through a law enforcement mechanism. So where the, the issue has escalated to the point or run definitively definitively afoul of Japanese law, then they would obviously handle that. But uh, for something like this, where they're going to have to start looking at uh, methods of disruption, yeah, you're going to need some sort of agency with, uh, with that charter, those responsibilities, and certainly the know-how to do it. So... Um, the fact that they're getting on board with this is, is certainly significant. Well, I guess the good news is uh, because a lot of this has been done sort of nearly completely out in the open and with little or poor tradecraft, uh, finding this, if you have few resources and you're a small, small nation with a big problem, finding it's not going to be the most difficult thing in the world. No, yeah, that's, that is certainly a, a good way of looking at it. I mean, it'll, it will cause uh, complications for them because uh, China will, will not sit there and uh, sit back and simply accept it. They will look for other ways to pressure Japan, and there's certainly ways to do that. So, um, I, and that's one of the things that I, I kind of expect to see across the board anyway is why we see tensions uh, rising, you know, diplomacy worsening. It's, it's not just because of the individuals in office. I mean, of course, that always plays a role, but it, it really comes down to the situation at large that's just drug on too long. And, th- and now that you're, you're tackling it, it's uh, becoming a very, very large tit for tat. We have to uh, save face and, and retaliate in some way. And it may not be a direct retaliation, you know, it, so we hit Chinese company, they hit a U.S. company or a Western company. No, it's, it's, it'll be we roll up a Chinese network, um, they get aggressive in the South China Sea, things like that. So there's, there's going to be a lot of you know, retaliatory moves here, and it won't stay in the realm of the intelligence world. Yeah, no, it's, it's definitely going to have to happen that way, right? Because we haven't been allowed to build these kind of networks in China. Um, and you know, the same sort of openness doesn't exist to facilitate that. So yeah, they're going to they're gonna have to push back in different ways, but there, gosh, there are plenty of opportunities to do that. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, obviously we'll be doing this every Thursday for a long time <laughs> to come, so... I think we have years, years and years and years. I mean, these problems, you know, it's not like these would ever go away, but I think it's going to be at an elevated level for, you know, like I said, we're looking at years of elevated tensions. I, yeah. don't, I don't see this winding down anytime soon. Yeah. And, uh, you know, and if there's anybody out there in the Justice Department listening, if you could uh, please move your indictments from Friday to Wednesday, we'd greatly appreciate that. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Let's get in sync here, guys. Uh <laughs> That's yeah, uh, the good thing about it dropping on Friday is, is, you know, I have weekend reading. I'm sure you do, too. Yeah. These uh, these cases are, are always interesting. I wish they were, le- you know, it's like deja vu every time you read one of them, though, right? Without a doubt. <laughs> like Without a doubt. <laughs> <laughs> that's the worst part about reading them is just like, you know, just makes you slap your forehead. Um, yeah, but, uh, you know, it, it's also important because. You always see a lot of the same elements there that crop up, and I certainly urge people that are listening, take a look at your organizations. If you're seeing this kind of activity um, that should become more and more apparent to you over time, 
then uh, certainly reach out to reach out to the FBI, get smart on it. You know, maybe nothing's there, but if you don't report it, you'll never know. Yes, the FBI will come out discreetly, pay you a visit at your invitation, uh, and they'll be happy to talk to you about um, these kinds of problems. And, you know, again, if you run an organization, you run a company or some organization that you feel you might be at risk, go out and read some of these indictments if you haven't before. And um, you might have red flags popping up all over the place. Oh, yeah, you'd be surprised. (laughs) It's an unfortunate surprise, but surprise nonetheless of, uh, of how prolific some of this is. Yeah, you might have uh, seen this behavior in your organization or, you know, bizarre sort of unexplained travel patterns or uh, consulting activity or something like that. I mean, these, again, it's so prolific and uh, the pattern just keeps repeating that uh, you might find something interesting. Well, one of the things that we don't talk about, and I'm going to mention real quick before we sign off here is any company, if you're, I don't care if you're for-profit, non-profit, if you're academic, uh, if you're government, one of the best things that you can do to help disrupt some of this stuff is conduct exit interviews for employees that are leaving. Um, you will find a lot of illicit activity that way, especially um, a good case to read up on that would be the Valspar case. That was an excellent one. That's where they got lucky in an exit interview and they stopped and basically all of their, uh, a lot of their newest paint technologies from going out the door just because they, they spoke to one guy who was kind of squirrely about what he was doing next. That's one other avenue to look at. Yeah, we've brought up that case many times just because it, you know, it's another good one because it, it illustrates how deep this goes and um, how many people and how many companies are at risk and really never, it just they're just not aware of it. If you have something valuable in the world, somebody else wants it. Exactly. Best way to say it. All right. Well, I look forward to reading tomorrow's indictment, and uh, we'll talk about it on Thursday. (laughs) That we will. You have been listening to Covert Contact from Blogs of War. This podcast is produced, written, and hosted by John Little. Follow John on Twitter at Blogs of War and join the conversation with hashtag CCBOW. Thanks for listening. Uh